The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Welcome to the History of the World podcast, everybody. This week, it's a magazine episode ahead of our episode on the history of Thailand, which is going to be an epic, uh, which I believe we should be able to bring to you next week. So uh, look forward to that. The history of Thailand, a very, uh, very interesting history um, for that country and many characters and, um, and a lot of influence from different peoples and different cultures different uh, nations and so it's a, a, a fascinating story I, I hope you'll enjoy it when it does come um anyway this is that time of year isn't it it's that it's the end of june uh normally means two things for the history of the world podcast firstly it means that i'm going to the chalk valley history festival and that will be um that's taking place all week by the way so even though I'm only going to be there on Thursday and Friday, um, the festival itself takes place over the course of the whole week right through to next Sunday. Um, but I'm not there in any official capacity. I'm just a visitor like everyone else and uh, I normally go down every year. If, you, um, if you're if you in the area, uh, it's, uh, it's in Wiltshire, quite near the, the city of Salisbury, uh, and if you're in the area, I strongly recommend, if you like history, it's really, it really is a very pleasant location. It's somewhere where you can relax, enjoy some history. Um, there's plenty to eat, a lot of market stalls where you can sort of buy stuff and um, certainly you can have a, a, a beer there as well. Um, and plenty going on. There's, all, there's plenty going on all the time. So whatever your interest in history is, there's always something going on that should interest you. So if you're in the area, um, I definitely recommend going down there. There's also a bookshop down there. There's a Waterstones uh, bookshop tent down there. So you can uh, maybe go home with a couple of new books. Um, and then there's uh, specific talks. Like last year I went and uh, I... I listened in on a, a, a study on the Mongol hordes, so um, that was very good. And uh, and then I ended up buying a book because I knew at some point, um, and it will be later this year, I'll be presenting episodes on the Mongol invasion. So um, strongly recommend the Chalk Valley History Festival. And if you're down there either on a Thursday or Friday, let me know so that I can hook up with you and we can share a pint and a chat about... Um, about history anyway um the other thing that happens at this time of year of course it's the history of the world podcast's birthday so five years old um now we uh we published our first episode uh way back on the 24th of june 2018 and in the traditional fashion of the history of the world podcast magazine we're going to go back now 
and listen to a little bit of that first episode. And there's one or two talking points which um, have sort of become quite relevant recently as well. I've had a couple of emails which I'll read out at the end of the broadcast uh, relating to the um, to the to the argument, let's say, about creationism versus evolution. And um, so where did humans come from? Were we created by God or did we evolve? Or or even, respectfully, was it something else? Um, the I think the debate will always go on. It will always go on. Uh, but very interestingly, we did discuss this in our very, very first episode way back in 2018, five years ago. So have a listen to this. The modern human being, did we evolve or were we created? At the beginning of the podcast, I read how the modern Bible describes the creation of human beings. The belief of this description of human creation by God is called creationism. Creationism used to be the widely accepted reason as to how we are here by those who read and believed the words of the Bible. God created us and put us here to be fruitful and multiply and we have done just that and become a population of 7.6 billion individuals who colonise most of our planet of residence. The contention arose through waves of support for the scientific theory that God did not create humans on the sixth day and that human beings evolved from an earlier non-human animal over a large amount of time. Now I could at this point go straight into a story about Charles Darwin, the English naturalist, who in the 19th century published the most famous book on this very subject of evolution by means of natural selection. He can certainly be described as a figurehead for the evolutionary theory of humans. However, The ancient Greek philosopher called Anaximander stated that he believed that creatures that lived in the sea, such as fish, are ancestral to humans. And Anaximander was alive two and a half thousand years before Charles Darwin. Later on and during the medieval period, a celebrated Islamic writer called Al-Jahiz, who lived around 1200 years ago, recognised how food chains were influential to the creatures who survived, stating how weak animals were devoured by stronger animals and that mankind was very much a part of this natural struggle. During the Renaissance, various scientists began to publish thoughts about the fact that the universe, the earth itself and all life on earth emerged as the result of natural events without divine guidance. Regardless of this, still the widely accepted Christian view was the creationist explanation given in the book of Genesis and therefore any scientific contradiction would just be harebrained and worse still, completely blasphemous. Creationism and the word of the Bible was starting to be questioned and this was a huge turning point in how human beings looked at themselves. Charles Darwin Charles Darwin, the most celebrated individual who championed the evolutionary theory of humans. His theories 
weren't always quite so celebrated in mainstream society, however. Charles Robert Darwin was born in Shrewsbury, England in 1809. Charles came from a Unitarian upbringing, which although was wholly Christian, it challenged the standard belief in the unquestionable word of the Bible, so therefore it was quite a progressive form of Christianity at the time. He was academically successful, but was exposed to scientific ideas that challenged the typical Christian teachings and beliefs of this time. He studied biological and geological subjects while at school, gaining great expertise across many aspects of these subjects. When Charles Darwin came onto the scientific scene in the 19th century, he was born into a world where the evolutionary discussion had been excited by his own grandfather Erasmus Darwin, among others. Evolutionary theories were being thrown around already about natural pressures being responsible for physical change, but all of these theories were being tentatively published due to the mainstream Christian creationist beliefs making it a dangerous game to play, challenging the Bible's word. Not all of the scientists could agree on the method of human evolution either. What Charles Darwin did is piece together all of the theories and make sense of it all through his own observations. He pushed the idea of natural conditions forcing the stronger of a species to survive and evolve into a new species, and the weaker animals would disappear into the oblivion of extinction. Darwin's work was so well thought out and demonstrated that it was a dangerous challenge to the creationist view. It was through his book On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life, to give it its full title, that Charles Darwin made his impact. The most controversial aspect of Darwin's book was the claim that men descended from monkeys. Although it was not a new concept, Darwin had expressed it in such a way to cause a chasm between those scientists who read sense into it and those creationists who completely dismissed it as rubbish. Such was the excitement caused by this publication that it soon became a subject for the public to seriously consider, whereas previously it was much more of a scientific debate which was not nearly as seriously thought about by the populace. This is how the phrase Darwinism became common as the way we describe this theory. Those who believed in Darwinist theory began to make it their business to look for the fossils that would prove the theory to be true. And we will meet some of the characters involved in this new branch of science called paleoanthropology in some of our future episodes. The conclusion of one text that I read rather succinctly put it that if it's a question of religion versus science, then the religious position has shifted since Darwin's lifetime and the scientific position has not. However, to clarify, this podcast is not set up to upset creationist theory, but more to discuss the discoveries that have led us to create a chronological history of human beings. And this podcast will tell that story. 
the story of our evolution through the evidence of archaeology. So, of course, this podcast really focuses on the scientific story of our evolution. And um, I think um, it's very important to point out that myself, I never ever sort of say really what I believe in because um, my always my prevailing thought is that I wasn't there. So I can't tell anyone um, what happened. I'm not. I'm, you know, as a history podcaster, I'm not someone who's told you what's going on. I'm someone who tells you what uh, others um, describe as the events that took place that brought us to where we are now. So basically, I'm just telling other people's stories. Um, so anyone that maybe says that this is not um, or this is against creationism, um, of course, scientific theory um, doesn't support the creationist theory, but um, of course we cannot say definitively what is right and what is wrong. We can say what we believe, but um, certainly I can't tell you what to believe. It's not correct for me to do that because, as I said before, none of us were there. Um, anyway, um, interesting to look back and I did leave the bit about Charles Darwin in there because someone criticised um, the material of that episode. Um, when I said that um, people believed uh, that Charles Darwin um, or the most controversial uh, thing about Charles Darwin's book um, was to say that, the, that men des descended from monkeys... Um, that's now become an urban myth. And the reason why it's become an urban myth is because Charles Darwin didn't say that we descended from monkeys. However, what Charles Darwin did say is that men and uh, certainly chimpanzees or apes had a common ancestor. Now, we understand that if we look back in the lineage of, of uh, apes, that apes evolved from um, a similar animal to what monkeys evolved from so uh, so we could you know in in the eyes of the of the world Darwin was saying that we descended from monkeys in in the eyes of the world and and it wouldn't strictly be incorrect but that's not exactly what he said so it's become an urban myth so I just want to clear that up and I think at some point uh, if this episode is re-recorded I may uh, I may elaborate on that point a little bit just so that it's clear. Um, so yes, interesting to revisit that episode for a couple of reasons. Now, talking of human evolution, of course, this can be um, this can be spoken of in wider timescales or more narrow timescales. So, if we talk about the evolution of the modern human as we know it today, the post-Neolithic revolution human. Um, of course, we one of the biggest factors about our evolution was how we learned to write. And of course, writing in its very earliest format could involve uh, impressing um, figures or, or shapes into a, into a tablet of clay. Uh, but of course now writing could just be as simple as 
um, as writing a text message. So let's have a look back four years ago when we were actually discussing the story of writing and then let's have a look at the most modern evolution of writing at the very end of that episode. So we have pretty much covered the major instances of emergence of ancient script and writing. The Latin alphabet, which we are all familiar with today, was not the first known alphabet of Germanic-speaking peoples and Scandinavian peoples. They had already developed an alphabetic system called runes, which were ultimately replaced by the Latin alphabet. The irony being that the runic system evolved from the early alphabets of the Italian peninsula too, so you could argue that runic alphabets were supplanted by a cousin alphabet. To the east of Phoenicia, the Aramaic alphabet had evolved to give us the early forms of the Syriac and Arabian scripts that we know today during the first millennium. The emergence and expansion of Islamic cultures would enable Arabic script to become familiar from the coasts of northwest Africa right across to the Far East and Southeast Asia from its Near Eastern origin so it is one of the more successful alphabets of the modern world. Much as the Arabic alphabet reached China, it would not replace the Chinese logographic script, which derived from the oracle bone script, which we have previously spoken of. This script would evolve and survive to the modern day, but another thing that the Chinese do not get enough credit for is their printing. Now, when we talk about the history of literature and writing, one of the greatest innovations that is on a par with the creation of the internet in modern times was the introduction of the printing press during medieval times. However, this was not the earliest known form of printing by a long way. The first known printing was made using woodblocks and it was developed in China maybe in around the year 200. Generally, the Chinese would print onto textiles, but they also began to print on paper. Now, paper is also something that when traced back to its earliest evidence, also points us towards this period of Chinese history. So the Chinese made significant advances in the materials of record keeping. The Chinese would use plant fibres and through a long process of preparation, straining and compression, they would produce sheets of paper. This style of paper production was much more widely available than papyrus and parchment, and would ultimately become the world's preferred material for writing. It would take its name from papyrus, as it would serve the same practical purpose, even though papyrus is actually the name of the plant from which papyrus is made. As is the case with Chinese, not every culture has an alphabet. Modern Chinese script has over 3,000 glyphs which make up its modern script. Japanese, however, goes one stage further. Japanese script has been influenced by a variety of local scripts, mainly that of the Chinese script, but through the ages this has resulted in a writing system that contains over 50 thousand characters. 
Now, it is certainly not possible for Japanese script to be fully learned by anyone, but children are encouraged to learn at least a couple of thousand. It also presents a problem in the 21st century world of internet communication, where it has been necessary to promote the use of Romanized Japanese, which is Japanese language written with the Latin alphabet. This style of Japanese is called Romaji and is learned in the schools of Japan despite its unusual nature. This will at least make it possible for Japanese conversation to be communicated using a modern computer keyboard. The traditional Japanese script was adapted from Chinese writing from the 5th century. Coming back to Europe and as we mentioned, alphabets were a difficult thing to control and when it touched a new society who spoke in a different tongue, they may adopt the alphabet, but then they might change it, either deliberately or inadvertently, over time. Standards were introduced, such as the Carolingian minuscule, which would attempt to standardise the way in which the Latin alphabet was written, which would be very important to maintain its universal integrity. This was especially important as more and more people were encouraged to become literate, especially in the monasteries where they would go to great efforts to illuminate their scriptures with decorative borders and a large decorated capital letter at the start, which would be infused with gold leaf and a variety of coloured dyes in many cases. It was a 9th century Byzantine monk who would create the first Slavic alphabet, simply because the Latin and Greek alphabets did not quite suit the vocal sounds of the language in the central eastern European lands of Moravia. The monk's name was Saint Cyril, and as such the alphabet is called the Cyrillic alphabet. Still in use today in Russia and many other ex-Soviet Union countries and also Bulgaria, Serbia and North Macedonia. Certainly in the last 600 years we have seen more advancements with standardised alphabetic glyphs produced for the purpose of producing printed works through the use of the press and subsequently when the typewriter was introduced during the 19th century. Fountain pens would replace quills as the primary writing stylus and with the introduction of email messaging during the 1970s we would accelerate into a world of word processors, computer keyboards and text messaging. Always fascinating to consider the differences between writing systems around the world and the fact that the the Japanese script is is so diverse that it's unlearnable. Um, So a very interesting insight there into global uh, writing styles, languages, alphabets, um, and um, you know, I really enjoyed uh, doing that exploration all, all that time ago. It seems strange, doesn't it? Four years ago, um, anyway, uh, that was it for that episode. Um, one of the uh characters that we kept bumping into in our earlier episodes. Uh, was King Pyrrhus of Epirus. Now, Epirus 
sort of similar geographically to where the modern country of Albania is now. Not exactly, but not too dissimilar. And uh, we hear of people, or, or certainly countries, having Pyrrhic victories. And the Pyrrhic victory has, has become known to us in the modern day as when you win uh, a battle, but you lose everything in the process of winning it. So you, you basically, it wasn't worth the victory. You might as well have not taken place in the first place. And the the, the phrase Pyrrhic victory, we get directly from this character, King Pyrrhus of Epirus. And um, three years ago, we were talking about um, we were talking about Rome and how Rome had expanded um, from its humble origins around the city to take over the uh, entire Italian peninsula. And King Pyrrhus of Epirus was very much a part of that story. Now, if you're getting a sense of déjà vu at this point. It is probably because we are continuously bumping into King Pyrrhus of Epirus during this podcast. This character was an Epirate king from the land of Epirus on the Balkan Peninsula and his main legacy to history was that he crossed the Ionian Sea in 3rd century BCE, made war against the Carthaginians in Sicily and then against the Romans on the Italian peninsula, scoring some famous victories, but ultimately achieving no lasting result due to the fact that in scoring victory, he lost too much to be able to capitalise and ended up going back across the Ionian Sea, leaving the Romans and the Carthaginians to focus on each other, something we'll pick up on next week. We first spoke of King Pyrrhus, from the perspective of the Carthaginians in our episode about Punic culture back in episode 9 of volume 2. We also spoke of him again, but this time from the Greek cultural perspective in episode 17 of this volume. Now we need to talk about him from the Roman perspective. By the year 280 BCE, the Romans had influence over a band of land across the width of the peninsula from Rome in the west to the Adriatic Sea in the east, and they certainly now had to be the most powerful entity of the Italian peninsula. However, the Etruscans were still dominant in the north of the peninsula, and the south was dominated by Greek colonies who were now operating as societies of their own since their founding Greek societies had undergone major political upheavals following the events of the Macedonian conquest of the 4th century BCE amongst other things. Sicily was being competed for by the Carthaginians in the west of the island and the Syracusans in the east and the Romans had a very good diplomatic understanding with the Carthaginians at the time. The Carthaginians were also enjoying a very prosperous phase in their own history. Pyrrhus crossed the Ionian Sea and landed at Tarentum in the south of the Italian peninsula. Tarentum was originally a Spartan colony established in the 8th century BCE and they were able to maintain a political relationship with the Spartans throughout the centuries following. 
Tarentum had watched nervously as the Romans increased their influence in the middle of the peninsula, especially at the expense of the Samnites, who were a highly respected buffer between Rome and the south. Some of the Greek colonies of the south were now approaching the Romans, possibly in a similar way to how the Campanians had done in the previous century. Tarentum was the most powerful of the colonies of Magna Graecia, and Tarentum was not happy that the Romans were becoming involved in the affairs of Magna Graecia. Rome continued its involvement in the affairs of Magna Graecia, and when the Roman navy entered the Gulf of Taranto, the Tarentines attacked them, leading to a declaration of war. And this is when Pyrrhus was invited to Tarentum. The Epirates would clash with the Romans at the Battle of Heraclea, and they would defeat the Romans. However, the loss of men in the Epirate army was too high for Pyrrhus to be able to capitalise on, and although the Romans had to retreat, the Epirates would have to rebuild too. Pyrrhus would embark on a campaign of gathering resources, while the Romans would prepare to meet the Epirates again. And this would happen the following year, when the two parties clashed again at the Battle of Asculum. The Epirates would be victorious again, but once again the battle was extremely expensive to both sides. The Romans would once again return to Rome to rebuild, while Pyrrhus turned his attention to doing battle against the Carthaginians in Sicily. Pyrrhus believed that by defeating Carthage, he could capitalise on the resources of the Carthaginian Empire. The Romans were in their homeland, so they were able to pull on the resources of their societies to replenish their forces. Pyrrhus would need to be inventive as his resource pool was somewhat limited and he would require assistance from other Hellenistic societies and nations to provide and transport more resources to the Italian peninsula. Pyrrhus was quite successful in Sicily but he was unable to finish off the Carthaginians due to the fact that the native Sicilians were rising up against him and the Romans were ready to come back to the south again. The Epirates would meet the Romans in battle again in 275 BCE and this time it was the Battle of Beneventum. Just as it was at Heraclea and Asculum, Beneventum was a fierce contest in which both parties suffered many losses and it is not clear whether either side truly could claim victory. But we do know that Pyrrhus suffered enough losses to have to effectively give up on his campaign. Pyrrhus would return to Epirus having achieved no gain in the last five years. The Carthaginians re-established themselves in Sicily and the Romans capitalised on the entire situation. The Romans had befriended 
enough of the societies of Magna Graecia to be able to gain a foothold in the south. And when Pyrrhus of Epirus died on campaign in the Peloponnese, the city of Tarentum knew that the game was up. They had no option but to surrender to the Romans or face complete destruction. With the Etruscans subdued in the north of the peninsula and all of Magna Graecia now subjugated in the south, the Romans were now in control of the Italian peninsula and were now recognised by the known world as an international power. That was three years ago um, in the History of the World podcast library. Um, And our final journey back in time this week will be uh, to go back two years. And uh, what was we talking about two years ago? Well, we were actually in Central America and we were talking about the Mayan societies. And uh, quite interestingly, um, when we were discussing the early Mayan societies, uh, we're still yet to discuss the later Mayan societies. Of course, that will be later on in volume four. Uh, But when we were talking about the early Mayan societies, we discussed their calendar and how this traditional ancient calendar had a very profound effect on the world back in 2012. Let's find out why. In our episode on the Zapotecs, which was episode 73, we described their calendar, which was in the form of a 260-day ritual cycle, working alongside a 365-day astronomical cycle. These two calendars were also featured in the records of the Maya, but there was also another calendar in operation called the Long Count calendar whose roots can be found in both the pre-classic Mayan civilization and the Olmec civilization. The long count method was used for long-term time periods that could chart time since the creation of the universe, which can interestingly be traced back to the date the 11th of August 3114 BCE. So effectively, all counting proceeded from that very date. The creation of the universe followed on from the end of the previous universe, which was actually the third attempt to create a successful universe, which was ultimately not successful. So the fourth universe was created, and we can follow this story in the Popol Vuh. We mentioned the Popol Vuh, as the Cosmogony script which was depicted in the friezes discovered at the pre-classic site of El Mirador. The hero twins in this story created man from maze in this fourth incarnation of the universe. The calendar is constructed with regard for the dates of the new incarnations, with the fourth incarnation coming at the end of the third incarnation's 13th Bactun. A Bacton works out to contain a total of 144,000 days. And this is very interesting because if we were to assume that each universal cycle lasts for a period of 13 Bactons, then the last date of the 13th Bacton of the fourth incarnation works out to be the 21st of December 2012. 
This actually created a wave of thought throughout the modern world that there would be an apocalyptic event in 2012. And many of us may even remember this happening. Many news programs would cover the story and ceremonies took place to mark the end of the world, even at the Mayan city of Tikal itself. However, it was just actually one of those things that was swept along by sensationalists because there was no evidence to suggest that each universe was born after a 13th Bacton cycle and there was no evidence to suggest that each incarnation would end in an apocalypse. So many scholars dismissed the suggestion of the end of the world and evidently we are all still here anyway. Interestingly, it seems that the Mayan long count calendar actually fell into disuse after the end of the Classic period with no evidence of its use in the post-Classic The most recent instance of the use of the Long Count calendar was in the early 10th century at the important Mayan city of Tonina. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, which was a History of the World podcast magazine special. And uh, it's always great to look back on some of the stories that we've told in the past and remind ourselves of those stories that maybe we've even forgotten about. It's been so long ago since we published them. So always great to revisit those moments. Also buys me a bit of time while I'm writing these special episodes uh, with such is the... Uh, such is the wide scope of the uh, of the subjects of the special episodes that um, it does take me a long time I think to research and write them and uh, the last couple in particular have been very long they've turned out to be very long episodes so um, I thank you all for your patience as ever now if you um, enjoy the podcast and want to support the podcast then please visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do that, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you will qualify for various gifts and rewards. And uh, if you want to access bonus material and you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. So this week we got a review from Fern Janea F from the United States of America who's put fantastic already through volumes one to three. Unbelievably great. I've had this in my ear every moment someone wasn't talking to me or sleeping since finding can't wait to get caught up what a great review thank you very much indeed connor banman wrote in and said hi chris i have listened to your podcast for a few months now and have just caught up to current episodes it's great and i have learnt a lot as a bible believer i take the creation story literally but that doesn't mean i didn't enjoy your first volume i believe that we have the same evidence and just come to different conclusions such as the first civilizations originating around mesopotamia i would say that this is due to noah landing there uh, and or near there, I should say, and the characters from Genesis settling there. Uh, 
You, I assume, maybe I'm wrong, so please correct me if I'm wrong, would believe that the stories come from the fact that the civilizations wrote the stories in the area they lived. Everything you cover, I believe, in just slightly differently. I think it's important to remember we, as humans, agree on more than we disagree. Um, Certainly, yes, certainly creationism and evolution used to be polar opposites didn't they and I I don't think they are so much now Connor you followed up actually you said just after I sent that previous email I listened to the Byzantine Empire part 2 where you got an email from Jake White who is a fellow creation believer I agree with everything he says about your podcast I agree with his line of reasoning connecting what other evolutionists believe with the biblical account I simply disagree with his belief that the first few chapters of Genesis are not literal I consider my a part of a group who believes that the Bible is a literally is a literary book and consider the days to be 24 hours. I love that there are opinions, however, because that is how we learn. Connor Bamman, thank you very much, Connor. Um, always going to be a very uh, a very uh, intense conversation, I think, and uh, one that you should enjoy taking part in. I think if you do take. Uh, part in that argument between creationism and evolutionists um but anyway that's it for this week uh hopefully next week we should get the thailand episode um although i will be away at the uh at the chalk valley history festival i do believe that i can present that episode to you so uh look out for that next week if you're around at the chalk valley history festival on thursday and friday do hit me up. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, be good. The History of the World podcast written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.